Professor Mary Beard, Dame Mary Beard, is the world's best known and popular classicist. Her specialty is the Roman Empire, about which it is said that men cannot stop thinking. That's according to a social media flurry recently. Professor Beard has written several bestsellers about the Roman Empire. Her latest, Emperor of Rome, uh, begins with Julius Caesar and ends about 300 years later with Alexander Severus. Uh, it's not particularly chronological. It takes themes rather than emperor by emperor. They were a vivid bunch, though, what with Caligula wanting to make his horse a consul and the incest and all those assassinations. But were they really so colourful or was it political smear tactics and preposterous anecdotes? I talked to Mary Beard the other day and first I checked. Maybe it was she who caused the social media flurry about men thinking about the Roman Empire for publicity purposes. I have to say, I, I accused my publishers of being brilliant and saying, oh, you had the best publicity campaign ever. They utterly deny it. Um, it was absolutely fascinating, wasn't it, that men in particular think about the Roman Empire seven times a week or seven times a day or you name it. And I thought it was, I thought it was fascinating. And I, you have to say, I wonder why they do that. I mean, I'm very pleased. Um, you know, of course, but professionally, I'm very pleased that people do. I, I do suspect in this case that it's a kind of safe space for indulging in a little kind of fairly innocent macho fantasy. Right. Um, because I, I think. You know, the Romans are 2,000 years ago. And in a sense, that sheer distance in time enables you to use them and play with them in your head in a way that is quite safe. And I think that, um, I, I, you know, I get a very strong feeling that when these guys are thinking about ancient Rome, what they're thinking about, they're not thinking about the women or the slaves or the ordinary people or the carpenters or the prisoners or whatever. They're thinking about um, very posh men in togas or little military skirts marching across the countryside and building roads. Right? Um, so uh, uh, there's there's a bit of male macho in there, I think. Also, I mean, um, I suppose they watched The Gladiator too many times as well. You quite liked well, that movie, didn't you? I did quite like the movie. I, I did because actually I thought it was it was more realistic than many on the very nature of gladiatorial performance, which is, you know, not just two guys thwacking each other. It's, you know, rather more, well, yeah, put this in inverted commas, colourful than Who that. were the gladiators? I mean, was, the, was there a whole class of people called gladiators and they were raised uh, to be gladiators? No, not really. I mean, or only in a small part. Often they were criminals, there were slaves, criminals, and there were some free people, no doubt desperate free people, who volunteered to be gladiators. But by doing that, they essentially gave up their citizenly rights. 
Right? So the, the, the point about gladiators, I think, is that they are defined as not one of us, right? They are, they've lost, they've lost the rights to be Roman if they ever had them. And I think that's one of the most important things about the gladiatorial arena, actually, which we tend to get very preoccupied, understandably and rightly, I guess, by um, the idea of the obeying crowd watching uh, the innocent being slaughtered. And that you, know, you can't get that out of your mind, rightly. It's one of the kind of worst bits of Roman culture. But... I think the more you look at gladiators and the more you look at the, the performances in the Colosseum, the more you see that it was it was more political than that. And one thing that is very striking about the crowd is that it's not in any way like what you see in the movies. The crowd comes in their formal Roman dress, their togas. Now, that's like coming in your dinner jacket or tuxedo. Right. The, this, as a colleague of mine said, the the audience at the at a gladiatorial show in Rome would be probably more like the audience that we associate with an opera than with a wrestling match. And so you've got a, 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 a kind of a political display of the Roman citizens who are sitting there in rank order with the most important on the front row and the next most important behind them. Um, watching those who are not Roman and excluded or prisoners under sentence of death kill themselves. It's a kind of very bloody version of political theatre. And it's very, very hard to get your head around that. And I, I still haven't, I think. Yeah. Let's just stick with Commodus for a moment since we're talking about the gladiator. He was desperate to fight and win, of course, in the gladiatorial battles in the Colosseum. Was it the Colosseum at that point? Yes. It was the Colosseum. And that was unusual. I mean, why would he expose... And besides, who was well, going to kill an emperor? Well, that's a lot of points there. I mean, one thing is that Commodus was not the only emperor and not the only elite Roman who flirted with the idea of being a gladiator. Um, for reasons hard to understand... Um, uh, many Romans decided that it would be, I think, kind of exciting, and I put that in inverted commas, to cross the barrier between the audience and the gladiators. And so many that actually um, they, they legislated against it. You know, they, they took the trouble to pass a law to say that elite Romans shouldn't be gladiators. And there, of course, you see the paradox about them, that they are the abominated, the lowest of the low, um, the, uh, those without rights. But there is a kind of attraction about them which makes elite Romans want to flirt with the idea that they are gladiators. Now, you're right to say um, we don't imagine that the elite Romans um, lost very often. Um, and a, a lot of the gladiatorial displays which involve people like emperors um, are, in, in a sense, play acting. You know, the 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 emperor is bound to win or the other man has only been given a wooden sword, those kind of stories. Mm. So it's a strange version of um, 
playing at being low life, but also, of course, what the emperors are playing at is being the center of attention, because the, the other paradox of the gladiatorial arena is that who is the crowd looking at? Well, they're looking fixed by um, the uh, abominated other, the, the, the condemned criminals who are at the center of the arena. Those are the people that we give our attention to. So it's a very complicated bit of Roman politics. And Roman emperors struggle, I think, to uh, engage with it. You know, they, they're always wanting to leap out of the box, like Commodus, but others too, and say, look at me. And I can go and I can be on the other side of the barrier. So it, it's it's a kind of place, I think, where you see something of the complexity of Roman society uh, that we often choose to, to ignore. Was he an unusually bad emperor, Commodus? Well, I think it's always very hard to know um, who was well, a bad Well, the emperor. point you make in your book, actually. How, how can you tell what was historical fact from the whole propaganda and political smear campaigns that went on all the time. Yes, I mean, I th and I think it's very difficult. I mean, there's a basic rule that if an emperor is assassinated, as Commodus was at the end of the second century CE, if an emperor is assassinated, they will have a terrible reputation afterwards. Now, that might be, and this is perfectly possible, it might be that they were assassinated because they were absolutely vile. Right. But it's equally possible that after they were assassinated by whatever seedy backroom coup, um, their reputation was blackened in order to justify the next guy on the throne. We had to kill him. He was so awful. What is interesting, though, is that they, and I think this is where um, it's still worth listening to the the criticisms and the lurid anecdotes, etc. What's interesting is that the ways that they were blackened uh, tended to be quite similar across Roman history. Now, what it was to be a bad emperor remained pretty much the same. And Commodus is one who um, has a, a dreadful reputation of humiliating the Roman elite. And there's a marvellous story. In this case, we're pretty certain it is true because we have an eyewitness account of it. There's a, a wonderful account of Commodus who has just been not only playing at being a gladiator, but been playing at being a wild beast hunter and has just killed some poor innocent animals. And he has killed an ostrich. What he does is he then decapitates the ostrich. He cuts its head off and he walks over with the ostrich head to the very upmarket posh senators who are all sitting on the front row of the Colosseum. And it's from one of those that we have the story. Uh, and Colos Commodus holds up the head in one hand. He holds up his sword in the other, brandishing at it at the senators and grinning at them as if to say, so our source says, it'll be you next, guys. And it's a, it's a great story because uh, our eyewitness account is a man called Dio Cassius, a, a, a historian, a Roman historian, um, says, we didn't know what to do. You know, here we are, we're in the Colosseum. 
The emperor has just decapitated an ostrich and is waving its head at us, brandishing his sword. What do you do? And I, he said, I nearly got the giggles. Um, but I thought, if I laugh, you know, that would be a disaster. So they're all there in their absolute posh best. And Dio is wearing a, a laurel wreath on his head because it's very formal dress. And so what he does, he says, is he picks a leaf out of his laurel wreath and chews on it, bites on it so hard that he manages to stop himself giggling. They, there you have the Roman Empire in a nutshell, really. You've got the transgressive emperor, you know, who is fighting, uh, fighting the animals in the arena. Uh, you've got the senator who doesn't know where to put himself, who is both terrified and thinks it's all funny, but in the end solves the problem by biting on his laurel wreath. Who was a really good emperor? Well, again, just as it's impossible to say who's bad. Yeah. You know, it's also... I, mean, I was thinking about say, Claudius, you know, but I think well, you say uh, Robert, Gra Robert Graves um, laundered Claudius's reputation yeah. and he wasn't as good as I, Claudius, would have it. We, you know, everybody wants to find a good Roman emperor. Ancient writers wanted to find a good Roman emperor, and we do. And, you know, just as... Um, you are going to be vilified um, by the person who comes after you if it's in their interests. So if it's in their interests to big you up, they'll big you up. Now, in part, Claudius has been quite lucky because Nero, who was his adopted son, um, comes after him and he has a, a considerable interest in making Claudius you know, his, you know, the symbol of his right to the throne. But actually, you know, you scratch the surface of uh, Claudius's reputation in other bits of writing. And he isn't the nice, slightly dodgy old scholar that Robert Graves makes him. You know, there are other stories about how absolutely vicious he was. And there are tallies made. I can't now remember exactly what the total was, but there are tallies made of how many senators he had put to death during his regime, his reign. Um, and it's just very hard to know. Um, he was killed by his wife, I think. Or was he? Poisoned well, mushrooms? It is said, it is one of the best stories in Roman history that that um, his wife Agrippina, who's Nero's mother, um, Claudius uh, adopted Nero because Claudius uh, married Agrippina after the birth of Nero. Uh, the, the story is that she was wanting to get Nero onto the throne as quickly as possible. And so uh, Claudius was a bit of a... a um, a, a barrier to this and he might have actually been going to choose his other natural son so she um, dispatches him with a dish of poisoned mushrooms um, whether it's true or not you know we just don't know I mean uh, the it's clear that you can't tell in the ancient world between a nasty case of peritonitis and a nasty case of poisoning and the Romans are very keen, as we are, on conspiracy theories rather than cock-up theories of history. So, so if an emperor falls down at dinner and dies, um, 
it's a much better story to say, ha ha, Gino, it was Agrippino who poisoned his mushrooms, right? Um, I mean, is there, that, is there any comparison with other empires? Can we look at other empires and uh, see the leaders of them come to as many sticky ends as the Romans did? We can, I think. I mean, the point I would suggest is that those empires where there is no absolutely fixed rule of succession mm. of, uh, tend to have um, more topplings than the others. Now, you know, in the British monarchy, not exactly an empire, but not so very different. You know, uh, one thing that was always clear was who was going to come next. You know, there was a rule that the monarch's eldest son succeeded. Now, there were disadvantages to that. Because he might have been you, a complete idiot. But he might have been, you, you said it. Um, he, he, you, ha you have to put up with whoever the firstborn Chances is. Chances were, I mean, the way the Romans did it, Generally speaking, they could adopt the man that they wanted as a successor. They would, you would, uh, not necessarily true, though, that they would pick someone who was up to the job. Well, what you do know is that they have greater flexibility. You know, they don't have to have the complete idiot right. uh, because that is who is bound to succeed. And so you've got a range of people from usually from within or within the more distant family, sometimes not always, but usually, who is then marked out as the successor, um, often by being adopted by the emperor. Now, in those kind of regimes where succession is much more fluid, and nobody quite knows whether the emperor might change his mind or whatever. In those kind of regimes, you tend to have a more contested and often brutally contested succession than those in which um, a, a fixed rule of, say, primogeniture, the eldest son succeeding. And also, uh, is, as you mentioned, Agrippina is said to have killed Claudius because she was worried that her offspring wasn't going to get the job. It, you know, it seems to give rise to a whole lot of stories about scheming women. It, it, it does. And whether those are true, sorry, I'm, I keep saying I don't know I whether know. they're true, um, which I hope that's not off-putting. I think it's quite liberating, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you know, one of the things, you know, everybody in the Roman world and the modern world is trying to explain what's going on inside the palace, what the, um, the, what the power struggles are. And there is a real tendency, both then as now, when somebody keels over at dinner, to say, OK, first of all, in whose advantage was that? And when you say, oh, that was in Nero's advantage or Agrippina's advantage, you then slip to say, aha, so she bumped him off then. Uh, and she must have done it. She must have done it in the mushrooms, you know. And sometimes that may well be true. Um, but there is a there is a tendency, and you see it often with these prominent women. Agrippina would be one, or Augustus's wife Livia would be another, who has a very big part in I Claudius. 
um, there's a tendency to blame the woman. Now, women do have more power in the Roman Empire than they had before. They have more power, quite simply, because they had the ear of the emperor. And anybody who has the ear of the emperor in a one-man rule system has certain power. But they're made into um, uh, scheming politicians who are trying to get their own way, usually murderously. Now, you only have to think about what is said about modern politicians to see that that kind of blame the woman tactic, you know, when men have messed up, who do you blame? You blame the wife is one that we still use. Um, in, In the UK right now, we're going through our inquiry into COVID and how the government responded and whether the lockdowns were properly administered and uh, decided upon, etc. Now, um, there's a general feeling that coming out of the inquiry that Boris Johnson messed up a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. You, <laughs> Just a, no, I'm being polite, right? Um, you, you then say, so why did he do that? And we have... In our COVID inquiry, just like the Agrippina story, just like the Livia story, we have them saying, ah, that was Carrie Johnson. It was Mrs. Johnson who told him to do that. Now, again, we have no idea whether she did or not. But it this is the kind of low-level misogyny uh, that... Um, that we see being used as an explanatory tool um, for the decisions and sometimes wrong decisions taken by people in power. Same thing happened here with Sherry Blair in America. It happened with Nancy Reagan. uh, And you can name many that, you know, if you want to explain the faults of the bloke in power, blame them on the woman. I'm talking to Professor Mary Beard, Dame Mary Beard, um, generally about her latest book, Emperor of Rome. You've, of course, had your own experience with misogyny. Does that, I suspect you've always been alert to it, but does it make you particularly alert to incidences of it in history? I I think so. I mean, I was brought up by a very strongly feminist mum and, you know, I don't think that there are many women in the world who don't know, for example, what it's like to be talked over or put down because they're female. Um, I think that, I suppose for me, uh, what's changed about how Roman history has done over my career since the 70s is that um, people, you know, and not just women historians, male historians too, um, are very alert to looking for the role of gender in politics. And I think that was never something that I was taught when I was a student, but over my career, thanks, thanks in large to, um, you know, to broad feminist, um, writing, we have come to be much more aware of how, of not necessarily the power of women, uh, because I think that you know, if you, you don't find much female power in ancient Rome. But we've come very much aware to how women are used as explanations, how they are gendered, how they are blamed, how they are put down. And 
uh, it's well, it's been in one of the pleasures of, of the, one of the most pleasing changes in my career, honestly, that um, people are now, they recognise gender wars when they see them in history. They didn't I, was just, I was just thinking about the succession hereditary thing. And, of course, Commodus, whom we were speaking of, succeeded his father, Marcus Aurelius, which was the the first biological succession for 100 years. Um, and that didn't work out too well. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that put them off the whole idea once again. Marcus Aurelius, was he a, you know, a good guy? He wrote meditations. Everybody thinks that he was a very philosophical and learned chap. We have a bit of a sort of sanitized version of Marcus Aurelius, like we do of Claudius. We've, you know, he has come down to distant history as the calm philosophical emperor who, you know, was a judicious man on the throne. And I don't think that that is wholly wrong. All these, all these stories have got parts, got parts that are true. Um, he was actually a brutal conqueror as well, or at least he put down. Well, you had to be right. I mean. You- you were part of an empire, 50 million people, and there were all sorts of people trying to invade you, the Germans and the Gauls and the barbarians at the gate and all that. You had to be, didn't you? You can say you have to be, and that that's legitimate. I think that I just recommend that people go and look at the column of Marcus Aurelius in Rome. There are two main columns in Rome celebrating military successes. The column of Trajan, which is more famous, and there's the slightly taller column of Marcus Aurelius, which was designed, I think, to be um, slightly taller, just to show you know, who or topped whom. Um, and the, it, the column of Marcus Aurelius has got um, images of his campaigns against the rebels. Um, it is one of the most violent, brutal, and I think destabilizing bits of Roman art that there is, you know, decapitations, women being carried off, all in a sense, in a kind of glorifying mode. So I think there is, all I would say is that, you know, you could say brutality is part of the course in ancient warfare, and yes, it is. Uh, I think that you have to put that image of Marcus Aurelius, along with the philosophical um, calm image. And I think you can do that in that very famous statue of his, which a replica of which now stands on the Capitoline, where Marcus is looking very serene on his horse, famous bronze statue. Um, and, you know, he doesn't have any reins in his hands any longer. So he looks as if he's controlling the horse by sheer force of will. Amazing. Mm-hmm. What you have to remember is that there's one bit missing from this statue, and that would have been underneath the horse's raised front leg, because what he would have been doing originally, as we know from similar statues, he would have been trampling on a barbarian, (laughs) right? So this absolutely calm, philosophical emperor standing there, all serene, on horseback, all serene, what the horse was doing, what he was doing, was trampling on a barbarian. Mm. Now, again, that's par for the course. Uh, you know, that's that's what the Roman Empire is about. 
But I think it should put a bit of a break on our idea that Marcus was a was a, a kind of um, a bit of a pacifist philosopher. <laughs> I was thinking about your point about it being hard to tell whether it was propaganda or political smear campaign. Um, when I read that story about Ella Galibus, whom I'd never heard of, actually. Yes, yes, I hope that that my book will really reintroduce the emperor, yes. Ella Galibus, to, um, to a general readership because he's undeservedly forgotten. <laughs> but he can't possibly have smothered dinner guests with rose petals dropped from the ceiling, <laughs> can he? What is truly amazing about Ella Gablas, who's a, an early third century teenaged, literally teenaged emperor, are the stories told about him because they're so extravagant and they're so lurid um, that, you know, they stick in the head. You know, the story about him um, smothering his guests at dinner uh, to death, smothering them to death with falling rose petals because he was so generous with the rose petals that they just couldn't escape from this this absolute torrent of them and died. Um, there's another story about how he invented whoopee cushions that he um, sat his guests uh, down to dinner on um, uh, uh, inflatable cushions which he had slaves deflate during the evening so they ended up on the floor. Ha ha, you know, teenage trick really. Um, what, what's amazing about these is they're utterly memorable uh, but also it's very easy to see that they can't, or at least the majority of them just can't possibly be true. Come on, let's get real. And therefore, I think they free you up, and I found this, because I think sitting down and thinking, now, is this one true? Is that one true? Perhaps I think this one is, that's a hiding to nothing, really. Because I think what's important about these fictional, no doubt, anecdotes about the terrible bad behaviour of emperors is they do take you into what Romans thought about emperors, the kind of stories they told about them, what they thought was frightening about them. You know, a bit like what you'd find if you talk to Brits about um, the monarchy, you know, what what happens, you know, do, do the queens that now late queens, corgis, did they really eat from silver dishes? You know, that kind of stuff. Mm. Or does... Or does King Charles, as a, a tweet that I've just seen, King Charles sitting there with his crown on his head talking about the cost of living. Yeah. Somebody pointed out the crown on his head probably um, amounts to the GDP of yeah. Kent or something. And <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. telling people how hard it is to survive. That's yeah, a kind of also... imperial story in itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and poor man, he's actually having to read the script that Rishi Sunak wrote for him. Yes. <laughs> so it's in his words, you know, that's, you know, that's monarchy all over, isn't it? You're sitting there in a really expensive, stupid costume, reading out someone's words. That's what he was doing. <laughs> so um, it doesn't seem that far away to you. It doesn't seem that alien to you. I mean, you know, Caligula's may be thin on the ground now, but nevertheless, you can see the systems and the people they produced as not being entirely alien to us. Well, you know, I think in some ways they're deeply alien. Uh, you know, they're deeply violent, deeply alien um, and quite horrible. But I think in other ways, some of the questions that the anecdotes and the stories about them raise are really relevant to us. I and mean, I think you know, the, the story of Elagabalus and the rose petals, you know, what's the point of that story? Why tell it? And 
to some extent what it's saying, and I think its point in a way, is that, look, emperors are really dangerous. And they're really dangerous even when they're generous. You know, an emperor's kindness can kill. And so one of the things that my book is doing is trying to get to the point of these stories, not to you know worry too much about whether they're literally true or exaggerated or complete fiction, but to say why are these stories being told? And you know it is the same with us. You know what? Why why do we tell the stories about Harry and Meghan, for example, that we do? And some of the stories that we tell about modern rulers, they're actually the same as. Um, the ancients. I mean, I don't know if you remember when Imelda Marcos was s- still alive. She mm. was supposed to have 3,000 pairs of shoes or something. Well, I well, saw the shoes. I, you the did shoes not were get... in her wardrobe when they opened the Melican Yang Palace. They might have planted a few extra pairs, but there were an awful lot of uh, shoes. You did, you did not get to 3,000, I can promise you. <laughs> there was a lot of shoes. There were not 3,000. Uh, and I think that it's it's very, very similar to another story that's told about Elagabalus, which is that he never wore the same pair of shoes twice. So he was another 3,000 pair of shoes um, dictator. And I think that those stories are pointing us, they're kind of, they're asking us to think why we're so interested in monarch shoes, mm-hmm. because we are. And we, we persist in being interested in shoes as an expression of utter extravagance you know shoes are the in a way they're the one or they're the the most practical of all the clothes that we wear you know we have to go out and tread the pavements in them and so when we think of monarch shoes we think about what it would be like to ha- to be the richest person in the world or the most powerful person in the world, what would your shoes be like? And we do it, you know, you know, diamonds on the soles of her shoes. It's about taking practical garments and saying the monarch turns them into items of impractical luxury. And then, of course, we're asked to kiss their feet. And there is a great story about Caligula um, told again about his shoes that um, on on one occasion he insultingly uh, lifted his foot up to somebody and the person assumed that they had to kiss it. Uh, The staff later said they got it completely wrong. He just wanted them to admire his shoes. Ah. And uh, so... Some some of our cliches about monarchs, dictatorial power, what people at the top do when they have more money than we would ever dream of, how do they spend it, what do they wear, who do they sleep with, um, those are very much the stories that are told in some cases about Roman emperors. What do you? What made you choose the Roman Empire as your specialty subject, as it were? Um, I think in this case, most recently, I'd always, you know, I've worked on the Romans. In the first instance? Well, in the first instance, um, I think it was archaeology, actually, that really got me into the Romans. It was being a teenager and working on uh, an archaeological dig near my home in Shropshire of a Roman villa. Shropshire's on the borderline. Where were you from, much Wenlock? 
much wedlock. Can right. we, we're living on the border of Wales and and England, and it was there was a big Roman city very near where uh, I was born and brought up, uh, and there were also Roman villas. And the uh, you know one of the things that I did when I was a teenager was that I went and volunteered to dig on the excavations that were that were digging up one of these Roman villas, and. You know, not only was it a great social life, which I have to say was partly the attraction of it, <laughs> um, um, uh, as you could imagine, <laughs> it was also it, the the sheer amazement of digging through the soil and then finding, you know, finding ancient Rome just beneath your feet. But then there was the pleasure and the intrigue, really, of saying, how do you make sense of what you found? How do you? How can you tell what you're digging up? How do we? How do we interpret these remains? How do we bring them back to life? And I think that was very much so. Well, it's something that always, um, you know, stood with me. You know, even when I was spending more of my time reading Virgil's Aeneid or Homer's Odyssey or whatever, it was the idea of how do we make sense of the past, and in particular because that's where I started at. How do we make sense? of Rome 2000 years ago you know what what is it we have to do to make to let them speak to us when was the last time because i suspect you know you you know everything there is to know about the roman empire given the paucity of the sources and the unreliable unreliability of them as we've talked about when was the last time you thought oh my lord i didn't know that or this oh. changes something there have been loads of times. I'll give you one example in a minute, but I think that I would just I would just kind of pick you up on the idea of the unreliability of the sources. Um, I, I think they are. If the question you're wanting to ask about them is, are they true, literally or not? Then, in that sense, they might be unreliable. On the other hand, they tell us more about the world of the Romans, the fantasies of the Romans. They're reliable if you want to get inside Roman heads in a way that, you know, we haven't got anything else until, I suppose, the Renaissance for that level of rich detail. But I'll I'll tell you one example that I came across when I was writing the Emperor book, and I started to read much harder um, the work of a Roman celebrity doctor called Galen. He lived at the end of the second century CE, and he was doctor to the imperial family. Uh, he came from the Eastern Mediterranean and he wrote in Greek. Now, one thing that's amazing about Galen, and I think that this will be a surprise to most people, is that this Roman doctor writing in Greek, the surviving works of Galen account for 10% of all the surviving works in ancient Greek that we have, right? He is massively prolific and hardly anyone's heard of him. And I heard of him because, you know, I'd worked a little bit on him, but I hadn't sat down and read him with the kind of care that I did when I was doing this book. Now, some of it is pretty hardcore medicine. You know, it's about which artery goes where. And it's I, I couldn't say that it was a, all or mostly a fun read. But there are marvellous stories about him treating Roman emperors um, for their different ailments. And on one occasion, he treats Marcus Aurelius for a very nasty tummy upset. Uh, and he's called in when the when the junior doctors have failed to um, cure the emperor, and it's looking like the emperor might die. 
Um, so they get Galen, the top man. Uh, Galen comes along, takes Marcus Aurelius's pulse. He describes this in the case notes, um, asks the junior doctors what they've been giving him. And they say porridge. And he said, look, the guy's got constipation. You don't want to give him porridge. No wonder he's bunged up, right? And Galen um, prescribes a very special and very expensive anal suppository, which kills Marcus Aurelius very quickly. And I think that's probably the earliest reference to, or one of the earliest references to an anal suppository in the history of the West. You describe the discovery, a recently rediscovered essay by Galen, um, found in the library of a Greek monastery in 2005, called On the Avoidance of Grief. Have you read that? Yes, I have. It's amazing. Um, it's a, a, a wonderful example of how works of literature from the ancient world are still turning up all the time. This one was found hiding in plain sight in a Greek monastery. And it's an essay by Galen in Greek. It, it describes what happened to him after the destruction by fire of one of his storage units in the Roman Forum. Uh, it was a vast fire in Rome in the late second century. And it whipped through um, the public ceremonial spaces. And it, but it was in here that uh, Galen had got his lockup, you know, kind of lockup garage, where he kept his medicines, his recipes, his books, you know, part of his library, um, thinking that it was safe. It was safer than in his house. But it gets completely destroyed in the fire. And he writes a short essay afterwards, and it's very, you know, in ways it's kind of moving and modern about how you come to terms with the kind of the loss of your things and does that matter. And it is one of the most affecting works by Galen. As I say, you know, quite a lot of Galen is hardcore medicine, um, but this is about um, emotion. It's about how how you cope with the destruction of your possessions. It's very sad. You have recently retired, end of last year, from university teaching. This presumably leaves you free to do other things, new things. What are you using your time on? Um, I'm... I know every retired person tends to say in a rather clichéd way, I'm busier than ever, but that's certainly true. Uh, I mean, it enabled me to finish the Emperor book. Um, but I've also just made a series of um, BBC radio and podcast documentaries about individual um, uh, Romans from the top, Marcus Aurelius is one, to a freed slave from Roman Britain. And we're trying to show that um, we know an awful lot more than we think we do about some of the ordinary people in the Roman world. And that's been fun. And I've made a television documentary, which will be out, I hope, in December um, on um, uh, how the emperor lived.
and whether we can ever get to know the Roman emperor. And it takes takes us to some of the, the places that I talk about in the book, but illustrates them in the way that telly, only telly can do, really. And I've well, been men are going to start thinking about the Roman Empire even more now, aren't they? I hope so. I hope they are. And I hope it's not just thinking about uh, posh old men in military skirts, but I hope they think about the slaves and the ordinary people and the women too. And that was Mary Beard, whose book is called Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World, Life Left in the Old Romans Yet.